And I had these feelings of being really depressed. And I was like, well, what do I have to be depressed about? And then it got to a point where I struggled to get out of bed. And anyone who has seen me speak on stage or read my books or watched my documentaries will know, like, I'm a very motivated person. So then all of a sudden, it's like, I struggled to get out of bed in the mornings. I'm like, this is, this is not like me. This is weird. Something's going on. So I was really confused. My guest today is coach, adventurer, author, and now TEDx speaker, Luke Taberski. This is the second time he's come on the podcast, and today we discuss mindset, mental health, and Luke's journey of overcoming depression and an eating disorder to embark on some of the world's toughest endurance challenges. I hope you enjoy this one. Let's get into it. Luke, thanks again for coming on the podcast. I said before we started recording that you're the second person that I've ever invited twice on here. So really, really excited to have you on today, mate. Thanks for being here. My absolute pleasure. I feel privileged to be on here again. It's just, I can't get over the stuff you've done, to be honest. And and as, as we've spoken about earlier, it was when I was into doing like ultra endurance events and I really wanted to test myself and that came on the back of speaking to yourself. And I really wanted to find out what that mindset was like, because it's, it's very, very physical, but it's also that that huge mindset element. And I remember listening to the podcast that we recorded, yourself on another podcast, and reading your book. And for me, it's just I, I that's why I'm doing a series now on ultra endurance because I think the link between ultra events and mental health and well being is so closely connected. And I think you're one of the biggest advocates for that. So that's why I had to have you back on. Oh, mate, I'm looking forward to to diving into all the details of many different things today. No, perfect. Me too. So I was listening to a part of your story earlier and you discuss your battle with depression and suicidal thoughts in your mid twenties, I think you were. And as a result of the injuries that you sustained when you're a professional footballer. So can you take me back to that time in in your mid twenties? What was, what was that period like for you? Very confusing, very confusing to start off with exactly how I felt. So I'm yeah, like 20 probably like 25, 26, living in London at this stage. Uh, and we're talking 2000, and to give the, the listeners context, 2007, 2008 maybe, 2009, somewhere there. So the world was a very different place in terms of speaking about mental health, right? And especially a guy in his mid to late 20s who has played football, and played football and that was all he did so and social media hadn't really kicked off it was around but it hadn't sort of turned into the um the beautiful beast (laughs) for lack of a better phrase that it is today so it was just very different and i was confused because here i am a mid to late 20 year old guy who's all i've ever done in my life is travel around the world kick the football. Like I didn't really make any any money from football, but I'd, I'd lived my boyhood dream. I'd travel around the world, had friends around the world, and I have a beautiful supportive family, uh, work, very working class family who are you know, very supportive in everything that I do. And I had these feelings of being really depressed. And I was like, well, what do I have to be depressed about? And then it got to a point where I struggled to get out of bed. And Anyone who has 
seen me speak on stage or read my books or watched my documentaries will know like I'm a very motivated person. So then all of a sudden it's like I struggled to get out of bed in the mornings. I'm like, this is this is not like me. This is weird. Something's going on. So I was really confused. And it took maybe a year or so before I put two and two together and went, well, hang on, I think I'm depressed. And it took that long for me to be living in this state of confusion as to why do I feel like this before I actually acknowledged how I felt. And then it took several more years before I actually did anything about it. Why do you think you were depressed then? What was your um, almost your diagnosis of yourself over those two years? In hindsight, it's really easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was the fact that I was constantly injured. So I moved to the UK and had some trials with different clubs and started to get um, little niggles and and injuries here and there. And um, I wasn't at a club regularly, whereas in for the previous like six, seven years, I'd been at a club for like a two-year contract or at least a whole year contract. And I'd been at a club for the whole season playing on the bench, working my way onto starting 11 and all, all the normal stuff that, that all athletes go through. Mm-hmm. But at during this sort of two-year period of time, I wasn't at a club full-time. I couldn't get a, a contract. And then I kept having all these like little injuries that put me out for six or eight weeks and then come back and another one would happen. So it was it was sort of two-pronged. One, that I was constantly having these injuries. And the second one was that I just felt really um, out of a outside of a community, yeah. a community as in like the club, because I'd always been involved with clubs, with sporting clubs, with football clubs, ever since I was four years of age. Like every year I'd been involved with a club, with a team, and now I wasn't. So I was sort of on the outside. And I think the combination of being physically injured, not being able to play, as well as feeling very alone, mm. uh, living in a, a new city that I, I knew literally like two people in London, I that's sort of what started this this snowball of me going down into a, a dark hole of depression. Yeah. What what led you? Did you did you then speak about it? Did you openly talk about it? What led you then to to the next chapter? So five years later. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I suffered in silence for many years. As I said, it took me about twelve or so months before I realized I was depressed. Uh, and then it got worse. Then it got worse. And then I felt ashamed. Because I was like, why? I have nothing to be depressed about. Like, yes, I'm not playing and yes, I'm struggling financially now. But like in reality, like I have a loving family. I had a loving girlfriend at the time. I, I lived in London. I was I was just getting by. But at the same time, it's like I'm, I can still live in London. You yeah. know, anyone who has spent any time in big cities and living in big cities knows that, you know, it's not cheap. But if you can do it, you have all this opportunity. So I, I had this abundance of in my life. But it was a case of it was compounding. It just kept going, going year after year. And that was this is where the I mentioned it just before, this is where the shame came in. Yeah. I felt really ashamed of how I felt. And um and then that sort of fed the depression and that made it worse. And it just was this sort of revolving sort of not door, but this this sort of revolving feeling of I feel depressed and now I feel shame because I feel depressed and it just continued. And, and I didn't have the internal strength at that time to go and get help because I thought there's no way in hell I'm going to tell my loved ones, my girlfriend at the time who I wasn't living with. So I could hide it from her and, and I delayed 
moving in with her. We've been together for several years and I delayed moving in with her because she was like really, really pressuring me. Let's get a place together. Let's get a place together. Yeah. And I kept making up all the excuses because I was like, if we live together all the time, I can't hide this from her. And so I just delayed the inevitable uh, from um, just hiding away from from life. And um, that's how I lived for, yeah, about four years. What was the culminating moment? What was the defining moment where you thought, I, I just can't keep going on like this? Well, it wasn't when I decided to retire. Okay. <laughs> So with, when we spoke last time, we, we talked about this and, and it's in my book where I decided to retire because my body just kept breaking down. I thought, I can't do this anymore. And I was very content with what I achieved in my football career. And then I threw myself into ultra endurance sports, right? And I started with one of the world's toughest races, the Marathon de Sables, which is really quick recap, six marathons in seven days through the Sahara Desert, carrying everything you need for the entire week except for water, which is rationed. So the food you eat for breakfast on Monday, the dinner you eat for on on Sunday night, and everything between those two meals you have to carry in your backpack for the entire week. Um, Through the Sahara Desert, 52 degrees weather, we got hit one day. So I threw myself into ultra endurance sports as an escape from life. Um, so I didn't have to face up to the reality that I wasn't a footballer anymore because this loss of identity, which I know we want to get into and all of these things. So I thought if I just distract myself with doing all these big challenges, then I wouldn't have to face up to my mental health issues that I was going through alongside. I would distract the world, society, the people around me as well. Because when they would say, now what are you going to do when you're retired from football? I would say, I'm going to be an endurance adventurer and do all these big, crazy challenges and travel around the world and, and, and do them, write books about them, speak about them, have documentaries made about them, write magazine articles about the adventures I go on. That's going to be my new job. That's going to be my new career. So the outside world would be like, okay, that's crazy, but yeah, we can sort of see how he's going to sort of get by. But in reality, it was just a massive like smokescreen distraction, Wizard of Oz type thing on the outside. I'm doing these crazy things. It's awesome and life is great. But on the inside, it was simply a distraction from how I was actually feeling and what I was going through. And to sort of answer your question a little bit Mm. more directly with that as context, it took another three three years from when I retired, two or three years from when I first spoke to anyone about what I'd been going through. So we're talking, you know, five five years that I struggled with my mental health, with depression, um, and that, that depression led into insomnia, binge eating, um, self-harm through exercise, and suicidal um, ideations, I think you would call it, where I stood on tops of bridges twice and not wanting to live. Um, that's how long it took me to actually sort of go, wow, like I need to go and get help when all of this was happening. I thought I, I need to talk to someone. And a really, a really takeaway for anyone who is struggling with their mental health and whether you've spoken to someone before in the past or never have, this is something I always offer as 
my advice from my own experience. I'm not a mental health professional, but from my experience, if you feel like you are struggling, I see it as you've got two options. You can either speak to someone who you love, your loved ones, your family, your friends, if you don't want to speak to a stranger, and that's cool. But for me, there's no way in hell I was going to talk to my friends and my family about what I was going through because I still felt so much shame. So I thought, I can go and speak to a stranger, a therapist, which is the, that's the road I went down, because I can tell them as little, as little or as much about Luke on that day as I want. So I'm in complete control. And after five or so years of struggling with my mental health, that's what I did. I found a therapist online and I walked into their office and I started that journey by just telling them a little bit and very much staying in control of what I divulged. Yeah, it, it's incredible. And that's that's such wonderful advice. I think males need it because we're still not talking enough anymore. Um, I think it's improving. The stigma is definitely improving. And everyone that I've interviewed on this podcast, this series has, has shared similar things to what you're saying, that importance of talking and reaching out. And sometimes you don't want to share everything at that point and you want to be in control. Um, and also another thing that we, we were going to come on and everyone sort of shared, and I think this is a real pertinent problem in, I guess, in society now, is a lot of people suffer with identity. And it's almost like this identity crisis where they don't know who they are. And they're often conflicted with who they should be as opposed to who they actually want to be. Um, why do you think that's becoming more of an increasing problem and pressure? Because when I was listening to what you were saying there, it sounded like you were putting an awful lot of pressure on yourself um, to show the world that everything's okay, but internally it's not. And like you said, that pressure just combusts into this one big depression. And it. why do you think that is? I think, and I, and I'll use this phrase again, and I've actually never used it before this this podcast. But social media is a beautiful beast. Yeah. You, okay. Um. And you can you can two headed monster, whatever you want to call it, but it really is. It's beautiful. It's amazing. You can connect with anyone, and, and some of the work that he's done on social media is amazing. But at the same time, it is a beast. It can yeah. destroy you quite literally. So I think one of the things is um. We are so connected these days and so very quick to connect. And we can see everything and anything right now. And things happen so quickly now because we are so connected with it with a smartphone. If you have a smartphone, if you have the internet, if you have a computer, if you have a tablet, you can you can connect with everything. So as I said, that can be really beautiful, but at the same time, it shows other people what is actually happening in the rest of the world, whether that's yeah. good or bad. So I feel like it can really accelerate people's negative thoughts when they start to that that like that snowflake, that snowball, that avalanche type of thing, because they're then comparing themselves to others. And then they lose that identity because they're like, well, this person has that, that person has that. Why can't I have that? I work really hard. It's yeah, like there's a there's a catchphrase that so many celebrities say out there these days is hardest worker in the room. Like you've got to be the hardest worker in the room. And it's like, you know, they they show themselves working really hard in the gym and all this, you know, massive long days. But it's like 
the everyday person can't live like that because they've got to cook, they've got to clean, they've got to do laundry, they don't have a chauffeur and all these sort of things. So we, even to a celebrity, we compare ourselves to being got to be the hardest worker in the room and do the 4 a.m. workout and do the 12-hour workday and then spend time with my family and then go and have another meeting and then do this and relax and you know drink some of my whiskey while I'm taking photos and putting it online. It's like, this is my day. This is how hard I work. But there's so many things in there that's not relatable to the everyday person. So I think to strip it right back, um, an exercise that I, I came up with and I started to work with a few of my clients who 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 I work with now, especially the elite athletes who I work with from a uh, mentoring perspective is if you're on a desert island and you had all the supplies you needed, imagine you're trying to describe to yourself who you are, right? Because you, you can't attach yourself to anything. You actually have to go within to understand who you are as a person, not where you fit in society. And that's a big difference. Who you are as a person, not where you fit in society. Now, I put my hand up. This is a battle I have on a weekly basis, I would say, because people ask me, uh, like, what do you do? And on a good day, I'll say, on which day of the week? because I do different things on every day of the week. Hmm. And then a follow-up question will be, well, do you want to know what I do or do you want to know how I make an income? Because they're also two different things. And what I do is more aligned to the person who I am. How I make my income is, um, and there is crossover, but it, that's more um, in terms of how I fit into society. Because I, I make an income from a keynote speaker, from a running coaching, from event hosting, from mentoring athletes. So that's how I fit into society. But who I am, Luke is a storyteller. Luke is a communicator. Luke is a supportive person. Luke is curious. Luke is fun. That is who I am. But that's not necessarily how I fit into society. So that's one thing that I think people can do is understand there is a difference to who you are and how you fit into society. We often label, don't we, far too quickly. And often with those labeling, that there comes that that permanent identity that you think you are. You lead a conversation with, what job do you have? And it's like as if like that's the most important thing about you. And I really like that. I've never never heard anyone phrase it quite like that. When when you enter a room, it's like, how 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 do you want me to be seen? Do you want do you want to know my income or do you want to know this? You know, it's yeah. almost like those societal norms, which ones do you, do you want me to fit in first? Yeah, I, and I encourage this for even just, especially, um, you know, end of the year, start of the new year, you might be meeting new people, starting new things, new activities, and people say, oh, what do you do? Ask them on what, what day of the week. Yeah. And like what, and people look at you really confused. And it's like, well, that's a relevant follow-up question, isn't it? <laughs> Completely. And I think that's where part of the identity crisis might come in because we're so used to being asked those questions of what are we, what do you do? And often we think actually that I think the world or society wants me to be that person, you know, your family or your friends or X, Y, and Z might think, oh, he's, he or she is doing that and that's who they're supposed to be. And then they're taking that counsel and they're, they're not actually thinking about what they want to be as a person. They're just going along with what they want, what they think everyone else wants them to be. And that can be a dangerous thing. And you can have that internal conflict then when you go to bed at night and think, am, am I happy? Yeah, 100%. 
And one of the things that I have gotten my entire life from my friends and my family and, and people who have met along the way is someone will say something and an off the cuff comment of like, yeah. you know, like if someone says, Oh, what do you do? And I'm like, well, what day of the week? And they're like, oh, don't be difficult. Just, just say what it is you do. And I'll be like, well, what do you mean? Like what day of the week do you want to yeah. know what I do? And they're like, Luke, just stop being, just tell us. And I'm like, no, the reason why I'm like this is because I'm not, I try not to be lazy with my language. And what I mean by that is the way that I talk to myself and the way that I answer questions, no matter who's asking, asking them, I try and be conscious of the language that I use. So if I'm just sort of leaning into what society wants me to say, that's not being true to who I am. So me saying on which day do you want to know what I want to do? It's not the fact that I'm trying to be different. I'm trying to be cool. I'm trying to be funny. I'm trying to be annoying. That is who I am. So I'm not trying to fit into society and, and the roles that society sort of deems us that we should fit into. I'm simply being conscious of the language that I'm using to when I actually speak. Now, this is this is really important. This is a very important point. Whether you're trying to run an ultra marathon, do an Ironman triathlon, start a new business, or you're just struggling with everyday life, being conscious of the language you use, not just when you speak to others, but when you speak to yourself is very important because when we're alone and there's no one else around and we have those negative internal conversations, like I still have negative internal conversations. I'm not perfect. I still have them. But here's the difference between myself and maybe someone else who's, who's struggling and maybe listening to this who has these negative internal conversations that really makes them spiral into a, a negative um, maybe depressive state or, or, or negative thought process is for me, because I've done all this training, this mental training, mental skills training, I'm quicker to catch the negative voices. I'm quicker to catch the negative things that I say to myself or about myself and go, well, actually, do I really believe that? Whereas a lot of people, because in everyday life, they're lazy with the language that they use, they say things to just fit into society rather than actually how they feel or what they want to say. So when they're in their home by themselves and they're in, having a bit of a bad day, they don't catch those negative thoughts that they're saying to themselves inside their head and that spirals them down into a, a negative state. And that's where it leads to things like self-medicating through maybe alcohol or or whatever it could be. Um, what's your relationship like with that? Because I remember reading your book and obviously listening to you on the last podcast that when you started your ultra endurance career in the Sahara Desert, you said, I was not okay. Like I did that marathon and I was not okay. I was doing it as a form of self-harm and self-abuse. And and as you, you said a little bit earlier on in the chat, that that happened for a couple of years. You were doing it as a form of self-punishment. What's your relationship like with that now? Uh, in short, very good. Very good. Excellent. Um, yeah. <laughs> really. Uh, it's, it's taken me a lot of years to get to, to the other side yeah. um, and to acknowledge not just the fact that I was doing it to punish myself as a form of self-harm. Yeah. I was addicted to exercise, but also it was my, I was, with that addiction, it was a form of self-harm. Like I did it to feel alive, but then it made me feel exhausted and tired and feel really crap. So I would binge eat um, to make myself feel good again, but yeah. then I would feel really crap. So then after I, you know, ate a tub of ice cream, a loaf of bread and a bag of almonds one night. It's three o'clock in the morning. I put my running shoes on. I'd go out and run five or six hours until the sun rose. 
and the cycle would start again. It is yeah. literally a form of self-harm. So uh, several years of therapy on and off, a lot of time doing my own sort of internal work, the mm. really hard stuff that yeah. you've got to sit there in your own thoughts, sit there with a journal, sit there reflecting on, on certain things in your life. Um, I, did a, I do a lot of self-talk, so out loud, looking okay. in the mirror, it's almost like having a counseling session, but to yourself. Mm. Um, yeah, there is a lot of a lot of science on the benefits of self talk, and I found it's really helpful to me um, that I would just have a conversation with myself in the mirror and 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 try and work through things. So I did years and years and years of this um, to get to a point, and my relationship with exercise now is like it's 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 great because I acknowledge when I can catch myself when I'm doing something to just try and make myself feel good, mm. but i maybe don't necessarily need to. Um, so, uh, yeah, it is, it is very good, but it's been years of hard work and I still slip up. Sometimes I will go, Oh, I'll just do an extra few miles here and, and I'll start doing it and I'll catch myself after a few hundred meters and go, do I need to do this? Or I just, want to do this because uh you know i want to make sure that i do this amount of mileage this week or whatever and it's like well actually i should just stop and and i'm done so i do catch myself but i do slip up sometimes at the same time yeah and i think it's easy to what's your why what is your why what keeps you going what made luke go 2000 kilometers and a 12-day triathlon from morocco to monaco when things are really hard things went really difficult for you i saw it in that documentary what was that why that you kept going to so why for the ultimate triathlon that fed into um i still wasn't really speaking about my mental health back then okay so it was it was the big escape so i i retired from football in 2011 uh, and i told the world that I was going to do this big challenge and it was coming and I was preparing for the ultimate triathlon from 2011. I the end of 2011, I, I created it at the end yeah. of the year and I thought, right, I'm going to do this in 2015. And uh, it gives me sort of, it was about three and a half years by the time I started to just prepare for it. So I thought that all my problems was going we're going to go away we're going to dissolve all my mental health issues all my i my identity self-identity issues everything was going to go away when i did this one big thing that i was aiming for i didn't plan my life past the ultimate triathlon everything i did was for that it was all for that and it was going to be this big thing have a documentary made about it then i'm going to do loads of speaking engagements after I talk about it. i'm going to write loads of magazine articles and all these sort of things and and I'm going to get new sponsorships and and then my life is just going to take off in an upward trajectory at 100 miles an hour. My life is going to be perfect when I just do this one thing. So my why was if I do this thing, if I finish it, then my life is going to be perfect. Then I'm not going to have all the issues that I'm dealing with. Yeah. That was my why. And when when you watch the documentary and or read my book, when you when you're reading or when you're watching the film you'll go this guy like it's it's not healthy it's not right he needs to stop why isn't his crew stopping him because he's doing himself like serious harm mm. and i completely agree and i've got a lot of negative comments about it that it wasn't properly organized that the route wasn't planned you know it was just over dramatic and all the rest of it and i agree with some of these negative comments because 
I did it on a very shoestring budget. I just sort of oh, semi-organized and said, I don't care. I'll figure it out as I go because of I was in this state of you know, deep depression. I, I just need to do it and everything will be fine. Yeah. And then went out there and as as you've seen the film and you've read the book, like it was 12 days of self-punishment and my crew didn't, they, they sort of knew a little bit of what I was going through. I opened up to to them a little bit beforehand, but it was a case of they're like, we can't stop him because he just won't stop. We need to just sort of get out of his way and try and keep him upright, so to speak, for the yeah. 12 days. And, and hopefully we can get him through to the end without any irreversible damage. And that was my, that was my why for the ultimate triathlon. It was going to fix my, fix my problems. Yeah. Where's that line between having almost like a bulletproof mindset that you could argue that you, de- well, you did demonstrate in that documentary to complete the challenge and that form of self-harm through exercise? You know, I, I'm often really interested in this. I'm reading David Goggins' new book at the moment. And obviously I read his book and I first thought when he he shared his story, but wow, this this guy, his mindset is amazing. And then I spoke to you actually last year, and then it made me think: Is he just self-harming through exercise? You know, and I, I just wonder where that balance between self-harm is and just having a bulletproof mindset. I like. I think you can have a, a bulletproof mindset, and at the same time, it's the real value of that mm. is knowing when to use it and yeah. when to not use it, because. Okay. People ask me, like, there's a bit of a caveat as well with, you know, my why was just like I was, my whole life was going to change if I completed the ultimate triathlon. The caveat is I had done a lot of hard work to strengthen my mind. And, you know, we, we talk about as I think, um, yeah, many other people have said, like, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're, when your mind's ready to stop, your body's still got X percent to go or whatever it is. And I think I like I definitely proved in the ultimate triathlon that it's it's not the case. Like your mind is so much stronger than your body. Mm. However, we train our body all the time, but very few people actually stop and do the work to train their mind. So the caveat to that is as a 14, 15 year old kid growing up in Australia in elite sport, I was exposed to sports psychologists, not because there was anything wrong. It was just part of training camps that we did at an elite level. Yeah. You would have 15 minutes with a sports psychologist after every training session at a two-week camp in the school holidays. And that became normal at that level. And then they would give you different exercises to do for the next term before we'd meet for another elite training camp the next school holidays. Mm-hmm. So I bought into that meditation, mindfulness, relaxation, things like that. I was doing all of these you know, in the mid-90s, late-90s as I was growing up as a teenager in Australia. And I bought into it and continued that throughout my teenage years and my early 20s, traveling around the world playing football. So it's not just the fact that my why was about my life was going to change and I'm, I'm going to fix everything by doing this. Yeah, I developed that, to use your phrase, a bulletproof my, uh, mindset through a lot, hours and hours and hours yeah. of actual mental training. And I believe that... You, anyone can do that. We know that it's it's mm. neuroplasticity. There's neuroscience. Everyone can can do this. It takes a lot of work, but then the real um, powerful element to this is knowing when to 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 use that, when to not. I guess it's having that emotional agility. Yeah. And for someone like David Goggins, 
I can't resonate with him. Like, I think what he's done for the world is great. He's inspired a lot of people. Absolutely. Like, as a whole, as a very broad statement, but I, I can't resonate with him. I don't understand, and I can't really comment on 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 what motivates him because, like, I just I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me, and that's okay. Like, it doesn't have to. I don't judge him for how he is because that's who he is. I'm curious as to what motivates him really from the inside, whether he knows it or not, whether he shares it or not. I don't know. I I don't follow him on social media mm. because I don't resonate with him, and it's not. I, I don't think what what he does is is good or bad or indifferent. It's just that he's on his journey, I'm on my journey, and 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 I don't really look at anything that he does because I, I don't understand it and it doesn't resonate with me. So um, for myself, it's being able to strengthen your mind through mental strength training and then having the emotional agility to know when to push and when to back off. Just a quick thank you to one of today's podcast sponsors, Unlimited Beer. Now, Unlimited Beer offer alcohol-free lagers and IPAs. And honestly, since trying them, I know I'm supposed to say this, but I genuinely mean it. They're incredible. I cannot taste the difference. If anything, I prefer the taste and flavor. So if you're looking to cut down on alcohol or even quit for dry January or quit permanently, I implore you to check Unlimited Beer out. They also do regular discounts too. You can find them at www.unltd.beer. I hope you enjoy. What do your family and friends think when you first started this journey into ultra endurance events? When you first said, I'm going to run through the Sahara Desert, what did your family and friends initially think? <laughs> I, I, I just remembered my mum my my went to Egypt um, and for a trip she'd always wanted to go to egypt and there's a point to this random story and my dad had no interest in going to egypt so he's like i'm coming straight to the uk and your mum will go to egypt for a couple of weeks and then yeah. come to come to the uk because they they both live in australia so dad came here to the uk and i said oh i'm gonna do this race and he was like what is it and i told him and he was just like well, that sounds a bit stupid. <laughs> and then I showed him some video clips and told him a bit more about it. And he's just like, you're crazy. But yeah, if that's what you want to do, go for it. Cool. I was mm -hmm. like, okay. So then mum comes after being in, in, in Egypt. And we sit down the next day or whatever it is and talk. And I said, mum, I've got some news. She's like, oh, yeah. I said, in six months, I'm going to run through the middle of Sahara Desert. Gave her the whole spiel. And she looked at me with... Yeah, you know, the mother's eyes and said, could you die? <laughs> and I'm just like, what? Just, you could die, couldn't you? And that was her first response. Yeah. Um, and often it is, isn't it? <laughs> so um, I just, I just thought of that when, when you asked that question, but no, it was, everyone thought like I was mad. Everyone thought I was a little bit crazy. Everyone thought it makes no sense. Mm. Um but I really pitched the idea to them, as I said earlier. I was like, yes, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to do these big, crazy challenges, but then I'm going to write magazine articles about them, and then I'm going to speak on stages about them, and then I'm going to um, have documentaries made about them and all these different things, have sponsors who are going to get on board and all this, all this type of stuff. And this is like 2011, 2000, yeah, 2011 this was. Mm -hmm. So yes, as I said before, social media was sort of bubbling in, in, like there a little bit. Well, it wasn't how it was today. So they were like, okay, yeah, fair enough. And as I said, I distracted everyone because straight away from the get-go, I was like, 
I got a couple of sponsorships who gave me like loads of kits and I had a couple of magazine articles to write and all this sort of stuff. And I had a couple of talks to deliver. So people were like, okay, he's still crazy and he does all these crazy things and and you're mad and, and all the rest of it. But I convinced people enough to not ask any more questions because this whole new, and I'm using sort of air quotes here, this new career of an endurance adventurer um, was starting to take off. How did that make you feel that people were perceiving what you were doing as crazy? I don't care. Like, you don't care? I've, I've never really cared what other people have thought. Um, you know, people thought I was, I was maybe not crazy, but they thought I was uh, not ready to leave my family home at 16 and live three hours away with a random family and play for a professional club while I went to a different high school. Mm. Um, a lot of people thought that wasn't a good idea for me as, as a kid. Um, they made it known. My yeah, my parents are extremely supportive. We made a decision together as a family with my mum and my and my dad and, and myself. Um, and so I've done things in my life. People thought yeah. I was I was crazy to leave Australia and go to America to play over there. Um, but it, it never really bothered me. I've I've made decisions in my life and in in various careers that I've had where people didn't quite understand. And I was like, that's cool. This is my life. That's your life. As I said, I just the way that I spoke about David Goggins, like mm. that's cool. He does him and I do me. I don't resonate with him. I don't really understand why he does what he does and how he does it, all the rest of it. But it's like, that's cool. Like if I ever met him, I'd give him a high five and go, dude, keep doing what you're doing. You're inspiring people. That's it. Yeah. So when people thought it was I was crazy and, and said things like that, I was yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like, why not? See what's possible. Who knows? And they're like, oh, you're gonna you're gonna break your leg, you, you're gonna get injured, you're gonna do this. And I was like, Well, I'm gonna train and I'm <laughs> gonna prepare the best that I can. Yeah. Uh so yeah, it's about preparation and and see what happens. And uh, it just didn't really bother me because I think that also stems from uh, all the mental work that I had done over the years to really not care what other people uh, think from a you know, very global um, sort of broad perspective. Mm. And I want—I guess I wanted to ask that question because a lot of people often look for outside counsel all the time to validate their decisions in life, I guess. And I thought when you decided to first go to ultra events, and you, you were struggling with that identity and you were going through depression. I just wondered, how, how does it make you feel when you're you're planning all these amazing things? And and did it bother you initially? But it, it didn't. No, no, it, it didn't at all. And, and I had a few friends in Australia who were doing yeah. ultra marathons, who mm. were doing Ironman triathlons. And I used them as, as counsel as well to bounce ideas off. And like, these, yeah. are, these are sort of like like my my brothers so to speak growing up um in primary school and high school and in your early 20s yeah we were very very close mates and we would tell each other how it is yeah um, so, yeah that, that really really inner 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 circle close mates and i told them what i was doing and a couple of them just said mate like you're crazy just do something a little bit less to start with so you get an understanding of it and i was like cool thanks for the in the advice but if I'm going to do it anyway, what advice would you give me? <laughs> yeah. And like one of my mates said, the 2,000 kilometers in 12 days from Morocco to Monaco, 14 days. You you can't do it in 12 days. The bike leg is is too short. You need an mm. extra day and a half to do that. And and he was a very experienced Ironman triathlete, 
qualified for the world championships and all the rest of it. And, you know, I valued his input. And I just said, I'm doing it in 12 days. So give me your advice of, of how I should do it and, and any, any thoughts you had. So I did have people who I listened to, but bottom line is anyone who didn't know me personally and wasn't supportive, I just disregarded what they said. Yeah. That's great advice. I think people need to learn that that if if someone doesn't support your your vision, then you're the only one who knows what what you're capable of. Yeah, and as I've gotten older, as well, and I've been criticised a lot more because I live a in more of a public uh, lifestyle now because I've got documentaries, I've got books, I do talks and things like this. The other thing that I that I have learned is. When someone is negative towards you or when they give you criticism, you've got to actually stop and think about, is there any truth in what they're saying? Now, that's very difficult to do, but it's very powerful if you can do that. Because someone who is being critical of you, they might not know you personally. They might not be supportive of you. However, there might be a little bit of truth in what they're saying. If you can just take on board that little bit of truth, if you can listen to what they're saying or read what they're saying and not have an emotional response to say, okay, let's let's look at this from sitting on the fence and go, wow, like actually what that one part of what they're saying, not all of it, that one part, I've never thought of it like that. If I use that next time, that could be helpful. So if someone doesn't know you personally then and doesn't support you, that's one thing. But is there any truth in what they're saying? That's, mm. that's really powerful. If you can actually sit on the fence without emotion and listen to what's being said or read what's being said and then go, you know what? Is there any part of what they're saying or what they're being critical towards me? Is there any truth to it? Can I use that to help me overcome what I'm trying to achieve? Yeah, definitely. Not not put you down, just help you and, and use it as maybe ammunition, if you like. So yeah. if anyone is listening now, because um, I actually had a few messages when we last spoke, you know, people couldn't believe what you were doing, really inspired. Um, so anyone listening now that thinks, actually, I'm going to read Luke's story, I'm going to buy his book, and then they'll finish it and say, I really want to run a marathon, or I really want to start the gym or I really want to create my own business. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be fitness related, but again, they're letting their own negative thoughts in. They're not sure. Again, we'll go back to identity. They're not sure if they fit into that imposter syndrome, all those things. How can people make sure that they're not putting themselves off a brand new challenge or creating a future that they really want? I'm going to answer this in two parts. And there's probably even a third part at the end of it as well. But the first part is is why do you want to do what it is you want to do? If it's just because you say, to use your example, someone read my book and went, wow, like Luke's inspired me and I can achieve anything I want. I'm going to go and do X. Why? Why do you want to do X? Why do you want to start a new business? You know, and I have an exercise that I do when I do corporate workshops and I sometimes put it into keynote talks depending on my audience and it's called the why tree. So I had this photo of this tree and you see the leaves and you see the branches and the trunk and then you see the roots and that you can actually see underneath the ground. You can see the roots underneath the sort of the, 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 literally the ground where the grass is. So we talk about um, 
knowing why. Why you want to do? Why do I want to start a business? I want to start a business because I want a career change. Okay, cool. So that career change might be the leaves on the tree. Now, I mean this in the the purest sense of the word. Like the leaves of the tree are superficial; they're on the surface. Now, the tree needs the leaves to function to be healthy. But when there's a bit of a wind, the leaves get blown off the trees. So if we just focus on the superficial wives, then when it gets really tough, we're probably going to give up. So then we go, okay, ask ourselves, why do I want to change my career? All right. So you ask yourself why a second time. And that might be because I want to make more money, right? Mm -hmm. That might, that's your branching why. That's the second why. They're the branches of the tree. They're the trunk. They're structural. They're strong, right? When there's a big wind, when there's a storm, they're going to still be there. You're like, yes, I need to make more money. I need to make more money. I need to make more money, right? So that's a, that's the second why. That's a structural why. That's a branching why. But in reality, it's like, okay, so you want to change careers because you want to make more money, but why do you want to make more money? So then you go down to the deep-rooted whys, and that could be anything. That could be to securing your children's future, okay? I tell you what, that's a pretty good reason to get out of bed every morning and do the work. So like, you know what? I want to make sure my child's future is secured. Or it might be because, um, you know, some other deep-rooted rooted why is because I've always wanted, I've always believed that I could, you know, create a business or whatever it is. But you've got to ask yourself those, that why question three times. You go from the superficial to the branching wise to the deep rooted wise, the one that really gets you excited and the and the true reason why you are starting this new venture. So the first thing would be to, to really understand why, and you can have multiple whys, and you should have multiple whys, and they should be of different value to you. If your if your why, let's say to start in the gym, is I want big biceps, right? Hundred percent. Write that down. Read it every day. However, I'm pretty sure if you spend some time going through that Y tree exercise, there'll be more to it than just I want big biceps. Mm. You know, when you when you dig down, and all of those whys are important because some days when you go, you know, I really want to set a good example to my flatmates, to my kids, to my wife, to my husband, to my family by getting up and going to the gym every day. There's some days that could be a really great deep rooted why. There's some days where that doesn't matter. What will get you out the door? What will get you to the gym? Be like, I'm going on holiday in two weeks. I need to get these biceps going. I need to get to the gym. <laughs> and that's okay because you've got to have those multiple whys. And the second part to that question is, what are your values in life? What are the things that you truly value and what are, what are the values that you want to live by? And a great exercise to start you off with this is get a bit of paper and just write down the values that you value in life, you know? So for me, one of the first things that always comes up is curiosity, it's family, it's hard work, um, it's honesty, all these things. So just write it down on a bit of paper. Write it down, write it down, write it down. And then once you have all this, these lists of all these values that you have, and, and, and it can be a sentence, it can be whatever, then can we transfer those into a life philosophy? A guiding phrase or sentences to, to live by, and can you get that into twenty words or less? 
So for me, my life philosophy is learn daily, connect with others, and share what life has taught me with the world. So when I wake up in the morning and I'm feeling really crappy, I think of my life philosophy and go, that's that what that's what drives me every day. Everything that I do is about learning, is about connecting with others, and about sharing what life has taught me with the world. And they're, they're sort of like three, as I said, exercises, but it's the why tree, what are your values, and then using those values to create a life philosophy that is a guiding set of principles, or it could be just those values, but you've narrowed it down to half a dozen that really resonates with you. And when you look at it, stick it on the bathroom mirror, stick it on your fridge, read it out loud every day, twice a day, when you get up, when you go to bed, when that really resonates with you, when that really you know ignites an internal fire, when you have those tough days, going through that process of reading or remembering those deep-rooted whys, it's going to give you the best chance to do what you need to do that day to achieve the results you want to accomplish in the future. That's such a great answer. Absolutely. I'm, I'm just thinking of like my own and, and thinking of the different things that you could do. And I really like the analogy of the leaves on the tree. And I guess you think like with the, whether your why or whether your purpose can withstand the turbulent times for the leaves to stay on because that's that's the real test of it all and yeah that's, that's such a good answer yeah and if and if it is that that adversity that you're going through and those superficial wires like you know the ones on the surface mm. if they don't get you out of bed that day to go to the gym or whatever it is you're going to do then you have the branching wires you have these other ones that you focus on you're like cool yeah like don't really care about big biceps today but you know i'm getting married in in eight weeks and i want to look my best so i gotta go to the gym <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know like and if that doesn't get you going you're like you know what like i want to do an iron man next year and this is part of the training and if i want yeah. to do that what am i wiser doing the iron man you go through that whole process it's basically giving you a structured um focus so you try and as i said before it's doing all this stuff doesn't guarantee you success it gives you the best chance to do what you need to what you need to do today mm. to help you have a chance to be successful in the future. So all this stuff, these exercises I've just given you, it's about giving you structured focus to not let those negative thoughts take you down that negative track, but to have that focus to just try and stay neutral enough to then move into a positive mindset that will then help you take action to do what you need to do today in order to be successful in the future. Yeah, absolutely. That's brilliant advice again. Um, so we're going to finish off the podcast today with some quick fire questions, which we'll answer in a sentence or or less. What um so we're gonna start with what's the best advice or lesson you've ever been given? Dream big. Dream big. I like it. What's the worst advice you've ever received? If you work hard, you'll be successful. Ooh, I like that one. Um, so often people limit themselves at the start. 
what is something you would say to them to stop them doing that? Dream big and find someone to be accountable to. I like it. And the last one, this can be realistic to the ultra world or mental health or anything you want, actually. It's quite a broad question. What is one thing that you would change about the world if you could? How can I phrase this? Kindness is somehow rewarded in a way that encourages more people to be kind. I like that. Brilliant answer. Um, so if anyone's listening to this now and wants to get in touch with you, if your books are open for coaching or anything like that, how can they do it? Yeah, everything's sort of housed through my website, lukedaberski.com. Uh, I'm on all social medias uh, at Luke Taberski. And yeah, I I work with ultra runners. Uh, if you want to uh, work with me, I do have a few positions open. I do keynote talks all around the world. So if you're interested in having me at your company or an event, whether it's virtual or in person, I'm very easy to get an email to or a message or DM or something like that. Um, yeah. And if you're an elite athlete and, and you're looking for a bit of a mentor to help you with just life and some mental skills, then yeah, I work with the athletes through all different sports at, at, at the same mm -hmm. time. So yeah. And you'll see me on the mic pretty much at a lot of different events around, around the UK. But uh, yeah, if you've got an event that you want hosted, drop me a note. I, uh, I do a fair bit. I'm around, but uh, I've always got time for for more opportunities with great people and and to help uh, help others out. And what's next? Uh, what's next? Going on holiday to Australia. That's what's next. Um, yeah. So I've I've got uh, a few plans for the next eighteen months. I've got my next plan is is eighteen months sort of long. It's I'm doing the plan is to do a big community project um, surrounding cycling running and and mental health um it's not quite revealed just yet um but yeah next next year 2023 is is really all about um sharing my message doing more keynote talks hosting more events and, and being part of different communities and i'm really sort of focusing on that that for next year and i'm sure i'll do some sort of endurance challenges as well like i'm thinking about swimming lake windermere uh, which is about 11 miles long um so i've just sort of coming through a bit of an injury at the moment that's inhibiting me from cycling and running so been doing a fair bit of swimming so who knows maybe i'll do something like that next year but uh healing and uh sharing the love and telling my story quality mate and i just want to sign off really by thanking you for being so honest and open and, and what you've shared today is is absolute gold so no thanks again my pleasure tom great to be a uh, a returning guest on the podcast no i'm honored thanks mate Okay, just before we finish the podcast today, I want to mention and thank this week's podcast sponsor. Nature Can is a carbon neutral, vegan friendly CBD and wellness brand founded by the ex-CEO of MyProtein, Andy Duckworth. Nature Can's mission is to help millions of people discover products that help them lead healthier and happier lives. From my own experience of trying the products, I found that the tinctures have massively supported my sleep and that overall feeling of calm. If it's your thing, go and check them out. Their website is uk.naturecan.com and use Tom15 for a discount.